Book Three, Chapter Ten of Amelia, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malone. Amelia by Henry Fielding. Containing a letter of a very curious kind. The Major's wound, continued Booth, was really as slight as he believed it, so that in a very few days he was perfectly well. Nor was Baguia, though run through the body, long apprehending to be in any danger of his life. The Major then took me aside, and wishing me heartily joy of Baguia's recovery, told me I should now, by the gift, as it were, of heaven, have an opportunity of doing myself justice. I answered I could not think of any such thing, for that when I imagined he was on his deathbed, I had heartily and sincerely forgiven him. Very right, replied the Major, and consistent with your honor, when he was on his deathbed. But that forgiveness was only conditional, and is revoked by his recovery. I told him I could not possibly revoke it, for that my anger was really gone. What hath anger, cried he, to do with the matter? The dignity of my nature hath been always my reason for drawing my sword, and when that is concerned I can as readily fight with the man I love as with the man I hate. I will not tire you with the repetition of the whole argument in which the Major did not prevail and I really believed I sunk a little in his esteem upon that account, till Captain James, who arrived soon after, again perfectly reinstated me in his favor. When the captain was come, there remained no cause of our longer stay at Montpellier, for as to my wife, she was in a better state of health than I had ever known her and Miss Bath had not only recovered her health, but her bloom, and from a pale skeleton was become a plump, handsome young woman. James was again my cashier, for, far from receiving any remittance, it was now a long time since I had received any letter from England, though both myself and my dear Amelia had written several, both to my mother and sister, and now, at our departure from Montpellier, I bethought myself of writing to my good friend the doctor, acquainting him with our journey to Paris, whither I desired he would direct his answer. At Paris we all arrived without encountering any adventure on the road worth relating, nor did anything of consequence happen there during the first fortnight for, as you know, neither Captain James nor Miss Bath, it is scarce worth telling you that an affection which afterwards ended in a marriage began now to appear between them, in which it may appear odd to you that I made the first discovery of the lady's flame and my wife of the captain's. The seventeenth day after our arrival at Paris I received a letter from the doctor, which I have in my pocket-book, and if you please I will read it you, for I would not willingly do any injury to his words. 
The lady, you may easily believe, desired to hear the letter, and Booth read it as follows. My dear children, for I will now call you so, as you have neither of you now any other parent in this world. Of this melancholy news I should have sent you earlier notice if I had thought you ignorant of it, or indeed if I had known whither to have written. If your sister hath received any letters from you, she hath kept them a secret, and perhaps out of affection to you both, reposited them in the same place where she keeps her goodness, and, what I am afraid is much dearer to her, her money. The reports concerning you have been various, so is always the case in matters where men are ignorant. For when no man knows what the truth is, every man thinks himself at liberty to report what he pleases. Those who wish you well, son Booth, say simply that you are dead, others that you ran away from the siege and was cashiered. As for my daughter, all agree that she is a saint above, and there are not wanting those who hint that her husband sent her thither. From this beginning you will expect, I suppose, better news than I am going to tell you. But pray, my dear children, why may not I, who have always laughed at my own afflictions, laugh at yours, without the censure of much malevolence? I wish you could learn this temper from me, for, take my word for it, nothing truer ever came from the mouth of a heathen than that sentence, Lewe fit quod benefertur onus. Footnote the burthen becomes light by being well born. And though I must confess I never thought Aristotle, whom I do not take for so great a blockhead as some who have never read him, doth not very well resolve the doubt which he hath raised in his ethics, namely, how a man in the midst of King Priam's misfortunes can be called happy. Yet I have long thought that there is no calamity so great that a Christian philosopher may not reasonably laugh at it, if the heathen Cicero, doubting of immortality, for so wise a man must have doubted of that which had such slender arguments to support it, could assert it as the office of wisdom, humanas res despicere, atque infrase positus arbitrari. Footnote. To look down on all human affairs as matters below his consideration. Which passage, with much more to the same purpose, you will find in the third book of his Tusculan Questions. With how much greater confidence may a good Christian despise and even deride all temporary and short transitory evils? If the poor wretch who is trudging on to his miserable cottage can laugh at the storms and tempests, the rain and whirlwinds which surround him, while his richest hope is only that of rest, how much more cheerfully must a man pass through such transient evils, whose spirits are buoyed up with a certain expectation of finding a noble palace and the most sumptuous entertainment ready to receive him? 
I do not much like the simile, but I cannot think of a better. And yet, inadequate as the simile is, we may, I think, from the actions of mankind, conclude that they will consider it as much too strong. For in the case I have put of the entertainment, is there any man so tender or poor-spirited as not to despise, and often to deride, the fiercest of those inclemencies which I have mentioned? But in our journey to the glorious mansions of everlasting bliss, how severely is every little rub, every trifling accident, lamented! And if fortune showers down any of her heavier storms upon us, how wretched do we presently appear to ourselves and to others! The reason of this can be no other than that we are not in earnest in our faith. At the best, we think with too little attention on this our great concern, while the most paltry matters of this world, even those pitiful trifles, those childish gewgaws, riches, and honors, are transacted with the utmost earnestness and most serious application. The grand and weighty affair of immortality is postponed and disregarded, nor even brought into the least competition with our affairs here. If one of my cloth should begin a discourse of heaven in the scenes of business or pleasure, in the court of requests, at Garraway's, or at White's, would he gain a hearing, unless perhaps of some sorry jester who would desire to ridicule him? Would he not presently acquire the name of the mad parson, and be thought by all men worthy of Bedlam? Or would he not be treated as the Romans treated their aretology, footnote, a set of beggarly philosophers who diverted great men at their table with burlesque discourses on virtue, and considered in the light of a buffoon. But why should I mention those places of hurry and worldly pursuit? What attention do we engage even in the pulpit? Here, if a sermon be prolonged a little beyond the usual hour, doth it not set half the audience asleep? As I question not, I have by this time both my children. Well then, like a good-natured surgeon, who prepares his patient for a painful operation by endeavoring, as much as he can, to deaden his sensation, I will now communicate to you, in your slumbering condition, the news with which I threatened you. Your good mother, you are to know, is dead at last and hath left her whole fortune to her elder daughter. This is all the ill news I have to tell you. Confess now, if you are awake, did you not expect it was much worse? Did you not apprehend that your charming child was dead? Far from it, he is in perfect health, and the admiration of everybody. What is more, he will be taken care of with the tenderness of a parent till your return. What pleasure must this give you? If indeed anything can add to the happiness of a married couple who are extremely and deservedly fond of each other, and, as you write me, in perfect health. A superstitious heathen would have dreaded the malice of Nemesis in your situation, but, 
as I am a Christian, I shall venture to add another circumstance to your felicity by assuring you that you have, besides your wife, a faithful and zealous friend. Do not, therefore, my dear children, fall into that fault which the excellent Thucydides observes is too common in human nature, to bear heavily the being deprived of the smaller good, without conceiving at the same time any gratitude for the much greater blessings which we are suffered to enjoy. I have only farther to tell you, my son, that when you call at Mr. Morin's Rue Dauphine, you will find yourself worth a hundred pounds. Good heavens, how much richer are you than millions of people who are in want of nothing! Farewell, and know me for your sincere and affectionate friend. There, madam, cries Booth, how do you like the letter? Oh, extremely, answered she. The doctor is a charming man. I always loved dearly to hear him preach. I remember to have heard of Mrs. Harris's death above a year before I left the country, but never knew the particulars of her will before. I am extremely sorry for it, upon my honor. Oh, fie, madam, cries Booth, have you so soon forgot the chief purport of the doctor's letter? Ay, ay, cried she. These are very pretty things to read, I acknowledge. But the loss of fortune is a serious matter, and I am sure a man of Mr. Booth's understanding must think so. One consideration I must own, madam, answered he, a good deal baffled all the doctor's arguments. This was the concern for my little growing family, who must one day feel the loss. Nor was I so easy upon Amelia's account as upon my own, though she herself put on the utmost cheerfulness, and stretched her invention to the utmost to comfort me. But sure, madam, there is something in the doctor's letter to admire beyond the philosophy of it. What think you of that easy, generous, friendly manner in which he sent me the hundred pounds? Very noble and great indeed, replied she. But pray, Go on with your story, for I long to hear the whole. End of section twenty nine. Reading by Malone.